On Being is supported in part by Penguin Press, the publishers of Becoming Wise, an inquiry into the mystery and art of living. Krista Tippett's book offers a grounded and fiercely hopeful vision of humanity for this century, of personal growth, renewed public life, and human spiritual evolution. Available now wherever books are sold. I'm Krista Tippett, and this is On Being's Unheard Cuts. You're listening to my unedited conversation with Michelle Alexander. Download the MP3 of our produced show at onbeing.org. Hello? Hello? Oh, is that Michelle? Yes. Hello, it's Krista Tippett. Hi, so good to hear your voice. Oh, you too. Thank you so much for doing this. We've been looking forward well, to it for a long time. For the- Oh, well, thank you for the invitation. I am a huge fan. Um, been listening to your show for quite a while. I've read your books, so oh, wow. <laughs> I'm uh, excited to have an opportunity to connect with you. Like oh, this. well, that means so much. And we have a friend in common in Serene Jones at Union. Oh my goodness! I just saw her a couple days ago, actually. <laughs> yeah. yeah, wonderful. Yeah, and actually, I really loved um, <clears throat> the the talk you, you gave at Union. Um, I really like watched that and took notes for this. I just thought it was very special. So, oh, we'll thank, you. Yeah. thank you. <clears throat> Wonderful. Well, Chris, do you want me to get some? Just um, okay. So let's not talk about anything meaningful yet. Let's hear like what you had. <laughs> okay. What you had for breakfast? <laughs> <laughs> had my usual bagel. <laughs> I've been trying to wean myself off bread, but it's not easy. <laughs> Are you are you traveling a lot? Do you travel a lot to speak? Not anymore. Mm-hmm. I had been traveling practically constantly, mm-hmm. um, but I have three kids, and being on the road that much just was really hard on everyone. So, oh yeah, um, I'm officially off the road right now, which feels good. I have to yeah. say, I was really blown away and full of admiration when I read that you you were writing this book when they were little. <laughs> That's amazing. Insanity. Nothing to admire. (laughs) Some derangement on my part. No, I mean it's just—it's so great that you know that you were able to think so clearly. I think my—I feel like my brain slowed down to such a glacial pace in those years. It's it's fabulous. Well, I had great editors mm-hmm. and a wonderful support system, so right. it worked out. Like you're, a li- you're a little bit humble, but all right. That's why we like you. <laughs> um, all right. Well, then let's just – let's dive in. Um, yeah, so I, I'd i love to hear I, – I don't see a lot of, of you talking about, you know, your childhood or where you grew up. And where, where did you grow up? I must have seen that somewhere, but I didn't write it down. Well, I was born in Chicago, actually, mm-hmm. um, but we moved when I was very young. So I can't say that I really feel as though I have a hometown. I moved around quite a bit, um, lived out in the cornfields of Illinois when I was a young girl, not hmm. far from Kankakee um, in a very small community. And then we moved to California and I moved around the Bay Area went to three different high schools and eventually graduated from a high school in Oregon, in Ashland, Oregon. So, okay. um, yeah, no real hometown. Yeah. And was was there a religious or spiritual background to your childhood? Well, you know, um, my mom's white and my dad was black. And when they married, it was still against the law in a number of states. Wow. 
And uh, my mother was actually disowned um, by her family when she chose to marry my father, and she was excommunicated from her Lutheran church. Oh and Isn't so, that amazing? So when was this? Yeah. What, what, what decade so are we talking about? I guess that well, it was in the early 60s. Oh, my gosh. And yeah. Um, yeah, so, you know, I was raised with the understanding that faith and church are not synonymous. Yeah. <laughs> and, yeah. um, you know, I was raised with, uh, you know, uh, understanding of the importance of um, spirituality and embracing um, a faith in not only Jesus, but recognizing that other religious traditions have a lot to teach us. Mm -hmm. And so I grew up with a lot of spirituality in our home, but we never joined a church as a family after that. Uh, It wasn't until I was much older as an adult um, that I found a church in Oakland, California, that um, I began to attend regularly. Mm -hmm. And um, you've written about kind of the earliest roots of your your consciousness of this language and the notion of Jim Crow and, you know, you wrote that that this was, for you as a kid in school, this was, you know, it was demoralizing um, to see pictures of that era and people who look like me sitting in the back of the bus. And that makes so much sense. And yet I feel like we don't hear many people talk about it that way, you know, about in, internalizing this history. As, as children. Yeah, I hope that going forward we give a lot more thought to how we teach race yeah. and racial justice in our schools because, you know, I notice even with my own kids that it can be traumatizing um, yeah. to be sitting in a classroom and uh, in honor of Martin Luther King Day um, be shown uh, pictures and films depicting, you know, black people being demeaned and the whites only signs and, you know, yeah. um, crowds of angry white people screaming and spitting and hurtling ab- objects at them. And at a young age, it can be difficult to process. And there's a lot of shame that can be experienced. And too often, I think, uh, young people um, are taught that. Uh, we became free because of the courage of one man, right. <laughs> Martin Luther King, right, right. Uh, who uh, ended uh, that horrible history of discrimination and segregation. And uh, it's difficult to understand, um, you know, how we fit into that history. And um, I think it's important for people, young people, to be educated about Um, the incredible courage and heroism of ordinary folks um, back then and today uh, as they struggle against injustice. Yes. And, and I guess, you know, your, your book, The New Jim Crow is, is, you know, it's just extraordinary and it's, it's become a really important text. Um, I mean, really you've, it's inserted language into the, you know, that's become, that that phrase, the new Jim Crow, has meaning, and it has, it has, um, it's it's has it's changed changing narrative and vocabulary, and has policy implications. But I, I think so. So we will talk about that and and the ideas that you've brought forward. Um, and I'm also so interested in how 
in 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 this this adventure you've been on of of being part of this new conversation and um and it strikes me also in the sweep of your work and you know I've been watching you out there speaking and reading other interviews you've given you know you're talking about telling the whole truth telling a truth we we haven't telling truths we haven't named um and 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 part of that whole truth and there's there's a shocking there are shocking terrible stories in there but that whole truth also can change just like you said those those demoralizing images um are part of a of of a story that also has so much courage and resilience and beauty in it and 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 it seems to me that your passion has grown for how this this story of the whole truth also is a story of our capacity to change what needs changing. I don't know if that was really a question, but I just wanted to kind of put that out yeah. there, that that comes through to me as I, as I see where you've been. Well, I'm glad to hear that comes through. I think, um, you know, for so, in so many ways, um, the whole process of writing this book and touring and speaking to a wide range of people, I've spoken in prisons, I've spoken in mm. churches, at judicial conferences, you know, interacting with a wide range of people who, you know, are all kind of slowly awakening to the reality of what we as a nation have done. You know, in this so-called era of colorblindness, we've managed to create this vast new system of racial and social control that has relegated tens of millions of people to a second-class status. Yet again, you know, we've done this thing um, as a nation. And, you know, I think for me, um, one of the reasons that I'm so have become so passionate about this issue is that I think in many ways how you respond to the crisis of mass incarceration in the United States is really a critical test for American democracy. Will this American experiment succeed (laughs) or fail? Um, You know, research has shown that the most punitive nations in the world are the most diverse. Um, Yes, and uh, that is such a fascinating thing that you draw forward. That the that yeah. the most punitive nations are more diverse, and the more the ones we look at and see those are more structurally compassionate are more homogeneous. Exactly, and so there seems to be this aspect of our human nature yeah. um, to be punitive towards the other, and uh, you know. In the United States today, we have a legacy of slavery and Jim Crow segregation to overcome. And we're also a nation filled with people of all different faiths, yeah. <laughs> ethnicities, backgrounds. Uh, and I think, you know, the question uh, that remains unanswered is, are we going to be capable um, of extending care, compassion, and concern across lines of race, of class, of religion, nationality? Or are we going to be enslaved by our punitive impulses um, and, you know, respond to those we label others uh, with pure punitiveness? And that's what happened, you know, with the birth of mass incarceration. Mm-hmm. Um, we responded to the most vulnerable with a wave of punitiveness and uh, whether or not we are able to turn back that tide 
and, um, you know, build a new justice system and a new moral consensus about how we ought to respond um, to the poorest and most vulnerable in our community, I think is ultimately a test of whether this multiracial, multiethnic um, democracy will succeed or fail in the long run. So, so let's let's just trace a bit of the story that you began to see and, and have written about. <clears throat> um, and you know, you used the word a moment ago about you know incarceration as a form of social control. It was really interesting to me that. Um, I mean, the war on drugs is in here, but but that even before that language, I think you know, you you talk about this impulse that that is very clear in, in with Richard Nixon, which then continued in the war on drugs about the, the problem of order, and um, and as you say, um, it's a it's a it's a it's a human it's a it's a human what you're getting at there is the human condition and. I, it, you know, I I think as we start to tell this story more fully, um, we do have to take in how uh, how homogeneous America had remained into the '60s. Of course, there was racial diversity, but it wasn't it was suppressed, right? So, in in a sense, it was honored for the first time or named for the first time. And as you say, there was all kinds of new diversity that hadn't been there before. Um, and then the war on drugs kind of and 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 all converged with with that with that with that sense of of the problem of order and this newness and the and the unfamiliarity and discomfort that human beings have with that how how would you i mean i'm kind of how would you start to like talk about what happened L- looking keeping this spiritual dimension this a uh, human dimension in mind Yeah, you know, I mean, I think that if we look back in our racial history, we see that for centuries, centuries, when you, you know, just pause and, you know, sit with that, for centuries, uh, we had slavery, legal slavery. Um, And after the Civil War, there was a period of disruption where it wasn't clear what the new racial order would be. And quite understandably, poor and working class whites, many of whom were struggling for survival and illiterate, felt threatened (laughs) by the end of slavery, were concerned about having to compete um, with newly freed slaves um, for work and for land. Um, And there was a period of of gains um, during Reconstruction. And that was followed by, uh, you know, a virulent backlash yeah. as, um, you know, whites who wanted to preserve <laughs> a particular racial order um, began, you know, unleashing just terror, um, terrorism, um, lynchings and, um, you know, murder sprees in black communities. And eventually... You know, we return to a new uh, racial order known as Jim Crow. And, you know, I think that what's often lost in the telling of that history is that there was a brief moment um, during the populist era where, you know, 
freed slaves and their descendants joined together with poor and working class whites uh, in a radical movement for economic justice. Mm-hmm. And they were challenging um, you know, the railroads and, um, you know, the 1% of their time <laughs> um, in a, you know, extraordinary multiracial movement for economic justice. And that brief moment of, you know, interracial unity and solidarity uh, for economic justice was destroyed by a small number of political elites, political and economic elites, uh, who were threatened um, by that movement and felt that Jim Crow segregation laws would be the best way to drive a wedge through that movement and that by disenfranchising black people, stripping them of the right to vote, um, whites would be forced to turn against their former black allies. And that is how Jim Crow was born. It was born in large part of an effort to uh, divide and conquer, uh, mm-hmm. you know, a growing movement, interracial movement for economic justice. And then we had, you know, a period of Jim Crow segregation, um, which, you know, I think is was far more brutal uh psychologically and economically than many people would even want to admit today right, right. and um you know i think what where the war on drugs um can be traced to is the disruption caused by the civil rights movement um you know once again there was a huge break in the prevailing racial order with the civil rights movement and fear and unrest and uncertainty, um, you know, washed over many white communities. It happened that the civil rights movement occurred at precisely the same time that deindustrialization and globalization, um, you know, was leading work to vanish uh, in communities across America. Um, During the 60s, you know, black communities were suffering from economic collapse. Hundreds of thousands of manufacturing jobs had vanished and and crime rates were rising. It's that it's that convergence of things like there. There are the milestones of the 60s that we celebrate, which are real, the victories. Mm -hmm. um, And then there are all these other things happening. As you say, um, there is a backlash there's an there's an anxiety um, about what has been brought into being through the civil rights movement and then there's these economic realities and all of that happening at the same time it's a very very complicated picture that's full of contradictions just trying to look at it yeah that's absolutely right and you see recurring again and again kind of this tension between wanting kind of order or mm-hmm. reaching for justice you know Martin Luther King in his letter from the Birmingham jail you know said the greatest stum- stumbling block um, for Negroes was not the Ku Klux Klan but white moderates who preferred order to justice mm-hmm. um, and you know in the Nixon era you saw 
calls for law and order um, being made as a way of galvanizing um, poor and working class whites who are feeling threatened by the gains of the civil rights movement and preferred to view civil rights protesters as um, you know criminals uh, who were mm. deliberately violating the law and sending the message to young you know African American men in particular that they need not have any respect for the law and there were segregationists back then who blamed rising crime rates not on you know the disappearance of work in inner cities but instead on the civil rights movement itself. Um, and so there's this tension and struggle as our nation is trying to transition yeah. from one that is based on um, a slave state and a legalized you know, caste-like system, racial caste system, to a multiracial democracy. And um, unfortunately, what we've seen time and time again is that with every major gain, with every major disruption, there has been a powerful backlash and uh, you know, part of the backlash that we've seen since the civil rights movement has manifest itself as mass incarceration. And you know, you, you've made the point also often that um, that you know, this, this statement that, that, that really f- first entered your imagination not that long ago, um, I suppose it was maybe – 10 or 15 or 20 years ago, but that that the war on drugs turned the clock back on racial progress. And that, that initially mm-hmm. for you was, was hyperbole and, um, uh, you know, something to be, to be dismissed, um, not really couldn't, couldn't reflect the complexity of reality. Yeah. Well, you know, I was raised to believe that, um, you know, there had been extraordinary racial injustice in our history, but that we are on the right path. And we may have a long way to go, but we are on the right path, uh, headed, you know, albeit too slowly, yeah. um, towards that promised land that, you know, Dr. King spoke of so eloquently. And in many ways, I think my own parents, you know, being interracially married, felt they had to believe in that. They had to believe that, you know, by bringing, you know, mixed race children into this world, that they were bringing them into a world where there was hope for their future. Um, and, you know, so I, I was really raised on that narrative that we were overcoming and so, you know, when I became a civil rights lawyer and, you know, and was a baby civil rights lawyer just starting out and I saw that sign stapled to a telephone pole saying the drug war is the new Jim Crow, yeah, I thought that was hyperbole. I, you know, shook my head and said, yeah, you know, criminal justice system is racist in a lot of ways, but it doesn't help to make such absurd comparisons to Jim Crow. People just think you're crazy. And then, you know, I hopped on the bus and headed to my new job as director of the Racial Justice Project for the ACLU in California. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it was really only through those years of representing victims of racial profiling and police brutality and investigating patterns of drug law enforcement in poor communities of color and attempting to assist people who had been released from prison as they faced just one unimaginable 
barrier after another, not just to their you know so-called reentry, but to their basic survival um, after being released from prison. That you know I had my series of experiences that led to my own kind of awakening um, that we hadn't you know ended racial caste in America. We had just redesigned it. And and here's so here's some of the ways you talk about it that. Um, for one thing, this fact that um, that this is not the rate of incarceration is not tied to the rate of crime, right? That's just um, it's, there's there's no there's not a correlation that crime went up, therefore more That's people right. are in prison, um, and that poor people of color are swept into the criminal justice system by the millions for drug crimes that go largely ignored when committed by middle or upper class whites. And that people then kind of enter this parallel so, uh, parallel universe in which, as you say, they are stripped of the rights, of the very rights that were won um, in the civil rights movement. That's right. You know, I think most people don't really appreciate the gravity of being convicted of a crime, particularly if you're African-American. You know, if you're white and you wind up with a criminal record, very, pe- very few people will, you know, look at you and think criminal. <laughs> you may get away with not checking the box on employment applications or housing forms. But, you know, f- particularly for black folks and poor folks of color, once you're saddled with a criminal record, um, you are stripped of the very right supposedly won in the civil rights movement, like the right to vote, the right to serve on juries, the right to be free of legal discrimination, employment, housing, mm. access to you know, education, basic public benefits. Um, you really are relegated to a permanent second-class status. Um, you know, and as I began kind of doing work in poor communities of color that were, you know, under siege in the drug war, I was, my mind was blown over and over again by the fact that young kids were being arrested, um, locked up for the kinds of things that, you know, I and my white friends <laughs> yeah. um, and friends of color had done in our youth and just treated as part of our youthful childhood. Right, we, we never even imagined yeah. Yeah, um, that we would be stripped of rights for the rest of our lives if we had been caught with some weed or um, been victim of my crime. And, you know, I went to college at Vanderbilt University. And, you know, when I was there in college, you would go to fraternity parties and there would be cocaine, people would be right. getting high, yeah. wasted, jumping off the roof of buildings. I mean, and you go into these communities, poor communities of color, and you see for so much less um, young kids having their, you know, futures destroyed. Uh, and you have to step back and say, what is really going on here? Why? Are we treating these kids um, with such little care and concern, treating them as literally disposable? Yeah. I mean, the statistics are, I mean, there's so many statistics, but like that more than in some American cities, more than half of working age African-American men have criminal records, which are going to be with them the rest of their lives. And oh, well, that one in four women, is this right? One in four American women has... Um, some someone they love, some family member in prison. Yes, and one in two black women. 
One and two. You oh know. Oh, my God, yeah. Yeah, and, you know, I think I'm glad you raised that because, you know, in my own work, much of the emphasis has been on the experience of black men in the criminal justice system in part because when I was working at the ACLU as a civil rights lawyer and we were waging campaigns against racial profiling and working on police brutality cases, so many of the complaints we received in the cases involved men, black men who had been targeted by the police, stopped, frisked, their car searched, torn apart or being brutalized by the police. And relatively little attention, you know, has been paid to the experience of black women and women in general in the criminal justice system, but also all the millions of women who are effectively doing time on the outside, struggling to survive as their loved ones cycle in and out of prison. Yeah. Um, and, you know, uh, there's a wonderful organization called SE Justice Group, actually, that's just been founded that uh, is designed to support women who have loved ones behind bars and, uh, you know, women who are struggling um, to take care of children, shuttle children back and forth to prison so that they can remain in contact with, uh, you know, their parents um, or siblings behind bars and uh, women who often have to bear the economic as well as emotional responsibility of dealing with and supporting um, their loved ones when they return home. And uh, there's so much trauma and yes. grief that goes unrecognized. There's a film that um, um, I didn't I, that uh, my producer found, and I think you you helped create it. Or it just it's it's very short, but it's women. It's all kinds of women, all shapes and sizes and colors and ages mm-hmm. of women. You know what I'm talking about? Who mm-hmm. who have somebody they love, sometimes multiple people they love, and. It's so powerful. I mean, it's only a couple of minutes, but, you know, that word trauma is a, you know, it's a diagnosis, right? We kind of throw it around. Mm -hmm. But to see these women, these beautiful people, right, Uh, the the grief, really, you, it's, it marks them. And also, though, you feel their strength. You feel, you see, like, what they are carrying, what they are carrying. Yes. Yes. Yeah. And, you know, it's easy to kind of reduce the phenomenon of mass incarceration to numbers, Mm -hmm. you know, and say, oh, there were 300,000 people behind, you know, bars in the 1970s. And now there's more than, you know, 2 million. There's 7 million people uh, under correctional control of some kind, tens of millions more saddled with, you know, criminal records and locked out. And you can crunch the numbers and show the racial disparities and all of that. But what gets lost is that human dimension, the suffering, the child who grows up, you know, visiting their father or mother in a prison waiting room. Um, You know, the grief of having to count down the days to your loved one getting home and then knowing that when they return, they're not really free, Mm. that they will most likely be unable to find work that they'll be barred from public housing. (laughs) They may be denied even food stamps for food if they've been convicted of a drug felony. Um, That because of some mistake (laughs) um, you made or your loved one made, that there will be no forgiveness. (laughs) There will be no opportunity um, to ever be welcomed back into your community, into society, 
as an equal member ever again. Um, and I think for those who haven't been branded a felon or criminal or who don't look like one, <laughs> um, it can be very difficult um, to grasp the depth of that alienation um, and and that pain and sense of hopelessness. And that's one of the reasons um, why I just am so thrilled and encouraged by the growing movement of formerly incarcerated people. Um, you know, 10 years ago, this movement barely even existed. But today, um, formerly incarcerated people and their families have been organizing nationwide, uh, inspired largely by an organization called All of Us or None. There is now a national network of mm. formerly incarcerated people organizing for their basic human rights, the right to work, the right to shelter, um, you know, the right to health care and um, drug treatment and, you know, basic human rights that we should be able to take for granted in a nation as wealthy as ours and uh, a nation that advertises um, ourselves to the rest of the world um, as the land of the free and a place of, you know, opportunity, uh, equality and inclusion. Isn't it interesting I mean, disturbing, disturbingly interesting that there's that civil rights and human rights um, don't that, that there's there's a tension between these things and and how we interpret them and how they get applied. Um, yes, you know what I, I mean. I think there is. Yeah. Yes. I mean, I was just you know, you know I was just recently at a an event at University of California at Irvine about it was about freedom of expression, and it was originally organized to co- to be for the first anniversary of the Charlie Hebdo attacks and it was going to be about mm-hmm. you know religious cartoons but in the meantime in the year intervening there's been this uprising on american campuses right all this ferment um a lot of which has to do it has you know as as a lot of the people there who are on campuses you know it has to do in part with the fact that american college campuses invited diversity and created room for diversity and celebrated it. But then, I mean, there are so many, okay, let me just say that, as you know, there's so many factors, there's so many dynamics, but one of them that's very important is that, um, but then, but then, you know, as they said, you invite people from different backgrounds and with different perspectives and a different sense of history and having been on a different side of history and and they're they're changing the rules and everyone you know they want to have conversations that weren't had before and this this feels shocking mm-hmm. um yes but this but also this realization one of these professors was talking about the realization that you know uh, and you know this as well as anybody as a legal scholar that that you know what we call hate speech is in fact protected speech um, mm-hmm. and uh, that that human rights becomes uh, becomes complicated um, because it also has a history that doesn't tell the whole story. I don't know. Is this something that you're thinking about? And you're on a you're on a campus as well. Yeah. Well, you know, I I think uh, you know in my experience. Part of the reason there is sort of this tension between civil rights and human rights is because, um, you know, of our sort of capitalism as our religion in this country. 
And, um, you know, if there is one common religion among Americans, I would say it's kind of this belief Faith that, in the market. Um, <laughs> faith in the market, yeah. 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 And a resistance to the idea that anyone should be entitled to anything, mm-hmm. um, that you have to go out there and, you know, uh, work for whatever you get and everyone does have a fair shot for the most part and uh, the idea of basic human rights that everyone has a right to work, uh, a right to uh, a, you know, fair wage and a right to housing and a right to equality, all these, the, 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 the notion of basic human rights is intention. Um, with that. And I think we're going to have to reconcile that Um, and, you know, recognize that, you know, civil rights, as King, Dr. King acknowledged that, you know, civil rights are largely meaningless without um, basic human rights. Mm -hmm. Um, That, you know, if you have the right to vote, but you don't have money for food or shelter, um, you know, how much is that uh, civil right worth, and today, of course, the question, you know, is um, you know, in particularly sharp relief because our democratic system is, uh, you know, controlled more than ever before um, by the wealthiest segments of our society, and you know, politicians feel far more accountable to their donors than to those who go to the polls, and. Uh, so, you know, I think that if we're going to look at the kind of challenges facing our democracy, I think it's one of the most important ones is going to be um, shifting from kind of the narrow conception of civil rights to a much broader, mm. um, you know, recognition of the necessity of honoring basic human rights if we really are going to, um, you know, show care and concern for people of all races, ethnicities, and classes, but also create a fair and just economy that truly does work for everyone. Yeah. And with all these, um, all this imperfection, right, all this unfinished work, this unfinished business that I think we kind of had talked ourselves into believing, as you said, we're on the path, right? Um. I it's it's very it's it's hard to read it's it's painful to read you know your book and what you learned to to your own surprise it there's culpability right there's complicity there's culpability and um I, and as you as you said like numbers I mean we even actually know this like from brain science that it's humans we can't really comprehend those numbers they they're abstractions um um so we can so somehow they we get paralyzed and kind of can tune them out, even if that's not morally what we we think we want to do. But mm-hmm. and also I think this this specter of I mean, there's real I'd say there's real evil in this this story of mass incarceration, and and it's and and yet it's something in me resists thinking that people were evil. But you know, you have this quote at the very end of the new Jim Crow. You end with James Baldwin and. You know, I think this is it. He says, you know, this is the crime of which I accuse my country and my countrymen. Uh, it is their innocence which constitutes the crime. Um, mm-hmm. Which is another, is a form of culpability. Um, and I, yes. let's see, where did I, I wanted to, actually I wanted to read you um, 
something that kept going through my head as I was reading you, and it was a, a conversation I had with Vincent Harding. And then I got mm. to the point where I heard you talk about how he had been so formative for you. Um, yes. Vincent Harding was this great um, civil rights leader and elder and helped King develop the the philosophy of nonviolence. And he said to me... Um, I just to read a little bit, but you know, he he started. We were talking about he's the you know democracy, and he said for me the question of democracy also opens up the question of what does it mean to be truly human. Democracy mm. is simply another way of speaking about that question. Religion is another way of speaking about that question. What is our purpose in this world, and is that purpose related to our responsibilities to each other and to the world itself? And he said later, my own feeling as I try to share again and again is that when it comes to creating a multiracial, multi-ethnic, multi-religious democratic society, we are still a developing nation. <laughs> We've only been really mm. thinking about this for about half a century, he said. And he's right that in historical terms, it's a short period of time. But I have found that personally a helpful way of kind of stepping back and taking a breath. Um, I don't know. <laughs> Yeah, well, I think there's so much truth in that. <laughs> um, you know, Vincent Harding was uh, such uh, an important figure in my life. Um, he passed too soon. Yeah. Um, but I think what he's pointing at there is kind of what I was trying to get at before, which is that, you know, this whole idea of every person um, mattering yeah. <laughs> um, in a democratic society that is incredibly diverse, that is multiracial and multiethnic and has a history of slavery, this idea that we can all come together and view one another as equals and see the dignity and value in each other and listen to each other, care for each other, um, build a society and an economy that works for us all. This is a radical revolutionary project that we're <laughs> embarking upon. Mm -hmm. And um, it remains to be seen whether we can succeed in actually living up to, you know, I think what many of us would describe as our deepest aspirations. And, um, you know, I, I, I have probably more hope <laughs> than might be warranted by the objective facts um, <laughs> that we will rise to the challenge um, of building, you know, what King called the beloved community. Yeah. I wanted um, to ask you if that language is resonant for you. Like, what does that mean in the 21st century, the beloved community? Or, I, I'm, do you see that if I asked you, if I asked you what gives you hope that you see happening that that's even reasonable language? Like, where would you point? Well, I would have to point to the extraordinary people that I've met over the last few years as I've been traveling around the country. Um, people who have overcome the most unimaginable odds. People who were treated as disposable, who are locked up, locked out, <laughs> left for dead, um, utterly forgotten and who not only have managed to make a life for themselves but have dedicated themselves to ensuring that no one will ever have to go through what they went through. 
um, people who are committed to waking each other up um, and <laughs> to turning towards each other with greater love, care, and concern. You know, as a civil rights lawyer, it's very common, you know, for advocates to get together and start talking about how do we persuade mainstream white swing voters to do this or that or to pass this law or that. And, you know, we often treat as progress, um, you know, shifting poll numbers um, among kind of the middle of the road voters. But I, you know, have come to believe that what counts as progress and, you know, the source of my hope is when communities that have been treated as unworthy come to believe in themselves, um, begin to speak in their own voice, um, begin to organize and act as though their lives truly matter. And that's what we've seen, you know, just in the last couple of years. You've seen all over this nation young yeah. black folks, but young folks, you know, of all colors, um, you know, waking up, standing up, um, and acting as though their lives really matter. And I really w believe that we will look back and see that Ferguson was a turning point at a time when Michael Brown was shot down and the young people of that community stood up yeah. and, you know, dared to say, you know, black lives matter. Our lives matter. Um, we are not going to cooperate with this level of injustice anymore. To me, that's what gives me hope. Um, and I, I think we, we have an opportunity here. Um, to you know, really see some powerful cultural transformation. Um, and I'm encouraged by the formerly incarcerated people who have begun to organize and find their voice, by the young people who are standing up and saying things that may be unpopular but need to be said, and by people of faith who are beginning to recognize their own culpability and remaining silent um, as a new system of racial and social control, a purely punitive system was born uh, on their watch. Yeah. Um, yeah. So, you said early on that part of the incompleteness of the narrative that so many of us grew up with is, you know, there was this visionary leader who was extraordinary. Um, but you said one of the misleading questions we sometimes ask, and I, I think you just pointed at this. You're you're talking, and you you know you've said you know a question for you, a, an animating question for you is how does transformational change happen, and and you know how does transformational change happen in this century? Um, and you've said one misleading question is you know who will be our Martin who will be our Martin Luther King Jr. and and if we right. can't see that person. Um, uh, it's kind of surrendering some of our hope. Yeah. You know, I, I think very often people are waiting for the next great leader to emerge, mm. um, not recognizing that that's actually not how the history unfolded. Even um, that history, right, yeah. Even that history. Yeah. That yeah. isn't even the true story of that history. Um, but that change will come about when... You know, enough of us 
ordinary people and especially those who have been most impacted by injustice um, refuse to cooperate with the status quo and begin to imagine um, that they do have power and that their lives matter. You know, I, I'm a believer that one of the greatest lies <laughs> that are told to poor people and folks of color um, and really, you know, I think, it, you know, folks of all colors in this country is that we have no power. I mean, I think there's many, many ways in which this message um, is sent. It's sent in ghettoized communities by the police where, you know, young men of color are constantly being shown and told that they don't matter, that they have no power by being thrown down on the pavement and frisked and cursed at by the police and thrown in the back of a police vehicle and um, held in jail without charges. And then when you're finally released, nothing happens. You have no power yeah. in countless ways. Literally. Um, that message is being communicated. But we do. We do have power. Um, and, you know, throughout history, you see that when ordinary people um, begin to believe that their own lives matter and that their voices matter and use their own power, um, you know, the power to not cooperate with the status quo. Um, and to dare to dream that another reality is possible, um, it is possible to shake the foundations. Even of a, living in a dictatorship, you know, you've seen around the world um, dictators fall, um, you know, countries uh, implode even when a relatively small number of people decide mm. um, we are no longer going to cooperate. And uh, the awakening that I see... Um, I find hopeful um, because, you know, people are, are waking up not only to the harm uh, that has uh, been done, the damage that has been done over the last few decades to poor communities of color. They're not just waking up to the harm, but they're waking up to the value of their own voice and awakening to their own power and capacity uh, for, for changing their communities and, and, and changing our nation as a whole. One, one way you've described, um, you know, use this word punitive a lot. And um, I, I think uh, it, it, it's a word that needs time to sink in, right, for Americans to think of themselves as punitive. Um, but you know, one way you said it in a more spirit in the more spiritual language is we'd become a nation of stone throwers. You know, as you said before, is set up with these systems in which forgiveness is not possible, redemption is not possible, mercy. There's no mercy. Um, and one thing you said um, is it's and in in moving away from that, it is not enough just to drop your own stone. <laughs> so, mm -hmm. how would you start to talk um, just to? People who care, uh, you know, black, white, other, um, about first steps, you know, first steps to begin. Yeah. You know, I think the first step is saying I'm willing to be awake, that I'm not going to tell myself the same old stories or be lulled to sleep by the mainstream media. Um, I am willing to wake up to our current racial reality, our current political and economic realities. I'm willing to wake up and I'm also willing to acknowledge 
my own complicity in the systems, right? And we're all complicit. I think, you know, there's varying degrees of culpability (laughs) and complicity. But we all, all of us, if you've been born in the United States and lived or lived in any significant period of time, and, you know, you have, uh, you, you have within you conscious and unconscious stereotypes, biases, varying degrees of privilege. Um, you know, I may not have white privilege as an African-American woman, but I certainly have class privilege. Mm-hmm. I have... Uh, we're, we're all complicit and we all benefit in various ways, um, turning away um, and being in denial. And so I think waking up <laughs> and then being willing to acknowledge our complicity and then the next step saying, all right, well, what then now? What shall I do? And the answer to that question, I think, varies for every person. Um, you know, very often people come to say to me, and say to me, what, if, what should I do if I want to contribute to this movement to end mass incarceration? What should I do? And I say, mm-hmm. well, that depends. Who are you? Mm-hmm. Are you an artist? Are you a writer? Are you a teacher? Are you a doctor? Are you uh, a janitor? Are you what, – what do you do? Do you attend a faith uh, community? Are you par- part of a faith community? Do you attend a church or a synagogue? What are your circles of concern? What's going on with your family? What conversation? Can you have there? And we all have a role to play. Um, all of our talents, um, our creativity can be brought to bear. Um, and I think it's up to us um, to become honest, fully honest with ourselves um, and um, be willing to act with greater boldness and courage and creativity than we have in the past. And kind of be um, in Because if we fail to do so... Sorry, what? Yes, yeah. yes. Yeah. Discernment, too. But, I mean, recognizing also that failure to act is a choice in itself. Mm-hmm. And I mean, so... Yeah. And, you know, you when know, you talk about being lulled to sleep, you know, I, I also... I think because I'm part of the media, right? <laughs> the media, um, mm-hmm. in quotation marks, I think a lot about how, you know... People are also, you know, a version of being lulled to sleep is just um, being paralyzed. And, you know, it's not um, a lack of care, I think. A lot of people are Mm -hmm. appalled. They're appalled by this reality and the statistics around it, Um, you know, the truth that's being told. But, you you know, it's just overwhelming. It's presented in a way that makes it overwhelming. But that is also... And you and you tell a story. Was it the night of the Obama inauguration when you that um, that that yes. glorious night? When I right, and you walked. And I out. saw the young man in the the gutter. Yes, yeah. yeah. Obama had just been elected the first time in two thousand eight, and I walked yeah. out of the election night party and saw a black man in the gutter with his hands cuffed behind his back, and wondered, you know, what does Obama's election mean for him? Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, I think it's easy to become overwhelmed and paralyzed and, you know, honestly, we, uh, you know, live our daily lives so overloaded, you know, yeah. um, even if, you know, you aren't living in a severely, you know, uh, crime-ridden or poverty-ridden community and living your life in a state of crisis of that kind, 
Uh, we live our lives full of distraction, you know, trying to keep up with our email yes. and juggling our schedules and bombarded with, you know, media images that are disturbing and we don't know how to respond to. And there's a, a level of kind of crisis yeah. <laughs> that um, operates in our daily lives as we um, run from one thing to another and try to kind of manage the chaos of it all. And, uh, you know, I can say in my own life, you know, one of the practices that I've come to embrace is, you know, the practice of just stillness and learning to stop <laughs> participating in the madness mm. and to pull back, become still and allow my own mind to quiet down and try to see things as they are as clearly as possible and then make conscious, deliberate choices about what matters to me and how I want to respond. And, uh, you know, even the act of slowing down and sitting still in a society and an economy that seems to reward constant movement and activity and communication um, is a bit of a, a, a challenging kind of radical act. It's a mm. countercultural behavior, but... <laughs> I think it's necessary for us to pull back from kind of the chaos of it all and um, take time to think about what contribution we want to make to our communities, to our families, and who we want to be and how we want to show up in this moment in time, in this moment in our racial history, our political history, our economic history, our gender history, all of it. Who are we going to be? How do we want to show up? What contribution do we want to make? And that takes some time and reflection. It doesn't think, mean yeah. that you go sit on a beach for days. It means taking time you know, out of your busy day to stop and reflect even for a few moments rather than just responding habitually uh, to all of the and chaos and what's demands of our what, lives. What, what's um, distinctive, I think, about what you just said also is stillness as a not just as a private discipline, but as a, as a, a public act, as part of um, mm -hmm. your public self. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think it creates space where we can begin to imagine alternatives. Yeah. You know, I mean, right now we're in the midst of a presidential election and everyone behaves as though, um, you know, having a Democratic Party and a Republican Party, both of which are largely owned and controlled by a relatively small number of millionaires and billionaires, is just the way things are. Right, right. And that we have no choice but to participate in this game. Um, and, you know, if you pull back and turn off the television set for a moment after the debates and begin to think, you can reflect on the fact that there are many models that might be embraced for our democracy. There are many ways of governing ourselves that don't have to look like this. Mm -hmm. And I think, you know, uh, the media and all of uh, our consumerism um, and the press of our daily lives can make it difficult to imagine alternatives and to commit ourselves to even small steps towards building a movement that might have some hope of being truly transformational. But all over the country right now, people are actually doing that work. 
Yeah. And that's why I'm encouraged. In faith communities, in reentry centers, in schools, on campuses, on street corners, in barber shops today, yeah. people are um, asking questions that haven't been asked in a long time and saying, uh, we don't want to live in a prison state. We don't want a political system that is owned by a handful of billionaires. We don't want to be in a state of constant war, um, you know, in countries, uh, you know, thousands of miles away. We would like to create uh, a different reality in our communities, a different kind of political system. How are we going to go about, um, you know, building a movement um, that can birth something new? These conversations are happening, and I think they have far more potential um, than, you know, any of the polling and constant, uh, yeah, you know, well, political madness that's going on um, in our primary campaigns today. Well, and and polling is all, always going to be skewed by the questions that are asked. And, and as you and I know, you know, the way you ask your questions, the way you frame something creates it's also largely you know helps construct the the answer the response and you say something which i think is very challenging um interesting and important and challenging that um that the intention we give to the to the progress we make on this issue I think you probably would say this about everything, that the intention we give to everything, you know, directs what happens. But that, you know, we can't just um, pat ourselves on the back because if we if we have start to have prison reform because we've made an economic argument and we're saving money. We can't um, look at the decriminalization of marijuana and say, well, things are getting better um, in terms of this, you know, drug war that that. It created just a, it was a kind of seedbed for so much of what's wrong now. Talk talk about that. Like, what is the correlation between the intentionality and um, and the social change that you that you're describing? Yeah, yeah I think it's a really important question. You know, mm-hmm. how do we measure progress? What counts as progress? And you know, today, um, largely due to the economic crisis that has been afflicting states large and small uh, with tightening budgets and all of the rest, you, we have a situation where, you know, former get tough true believers, you know, from Newt Gingrich to, you know, a host of Republican governors are saying, well, maybe it's time for us to downsize our prisons because they don't want to have to raise taxes on predominantly white middle class in order to pay for this vast expensive prison state that has now been constructed. And so you see that, you know, there are some reforms that are being made, um, sentencing reforms and other reforms that are motivated primarily to save dollars, um, not out of any genuine care concern for the millions of lives that have been destroyed um, through the drug war and the wars on crime um, that have been waged in our poorest communities. And I am concerned that if we kind of do the right thing for the wrong reasons, um, that we will find ourselves in this endless cycle of reform and retrenchment, um, you know, 
if mm-hmm. we have not learned <laughs> the lessons that history is trying to teach us um, and learn to respond with more care and compassion as opposed to punitiveness to poor communities of color, um, we're going to resort to that punitive impulse again and again, um, either when crime rates rise or when we feel that we can afford to go back to, you know, locking up people at, um, you know, extraordinarily high rates. Um, or we'll find new ways of expressing our punitiveness, um, you know, ways that may right. be unimaginable to us now, just in the same way that mass incarceration itself was literally unimaginable just 40 years ago. Um, and so I think we have got to pay much more attention um, to whether we are achieving cultural transformation and forging a new moral consensus about how we ought to treat one another and what is owed to one another um, and not count our wins and losses simply um, by the number of votes that a particular reform bill receives. Yeah, I mean, one way you've said this very poetically is that doing the right thing for the wrong reasons, we may save lives only to lose them later. But something that you've said that I find very theological (laughs) is that we have to find ways as we navigate this. I mean, as I think you're saying, as we reckon with it, we really reckon with what is at stake here, the big questions, that's language use, the big questions that we have to honor the criminality in each one of us. Yes. Yeah. (laughs) Say some more. You know, I, I, you know, I really believe that, um, this notion of us versus them, um, drawing lines and labeling one another, all turns on this notion that we can define who the bad guys are and rest assured that they're not us. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, so I, I believe if we're going to achieve the kind of shift in consciousness that is necessary, we are going to have to be able to say and mean, you know, we're all criminals. Uh, We have to acknowledge that all of us have done wrong in our lives. The criminals are not them over there. They're us. They're all of us. All of us have done wrong. Um, You know, all of us have broken the law at some point in our lives. You know, I often say, you know, even if you haven't experimented with drugs, even if you didn't drink underage, if the worst thing you've done in your life is spend, you know, speed 10 miles over the speed limit on the freeway, well, you've put yourself and others at more risk of harm yeah. than someone smoking marijuana in the privacy of their living room. Um, but who do we shame and who do we blame? Um, you know, I've spoken in churches and I'll say, you know, to a large congregation, you know, we're all sinners and everyone will nod their head. Oh, yes, we're all sinners. And then I'll say, and we're all criminals. And everyone just stares at me, you know, kind of (laughs) bug eyed, like, what? You're calling me a criminal? Right. And, Mm. you know, it was interesting. A young man came up to me after I spoke in one church and he said, you know, isn't it interesting how eager we are all, you know, to admit that we violated God's law, but how reluctant we are to admit that we violated man's law. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I think that there is a way in which we, you know, kind of give lip service to this idea that we're all sinners or we all make mistakes. Um, but uh, we have a 
difficult time acknowledging, oh, we're all criminals. Those people that have been shamed and blamed and stigmatized, actually, we are on so many levels not really better than them. Um, we may be luckier than them. <laughs> um, mm-hmm. You know, President Obama himself, you know, wrote in his <laughs> memoir about doing quite a bit of drugs, marijuana and cocaine in his youth. Mm-hmm. And, you know, if circumstances had been different for him, if he hadn't been raised by white grandparents in Hawaii, if he had been raised in the hood, yeah. you know, chances are very good. He would have been stopped, searched, caught. And far from being president of the United States today, he might not even have the right to vote depending on what state he lived in. <laughs> yeah, that's um, very starkly. Yeah. I, I yeah. will say I, I believe that language is so important. And I do – I am so intrigued by how, you know, it's still fragile, but how I hear this language of mercy and redemption, um, you know, words like that kind of entering our public sphere. Yeah, you know, it's funny because I just recently read a quote by James Baldwin, and I wish I had it memorized perfectly. I don't. But it had something to do with along the lines of um, you think that I need to be forgiven, but it's you who must be forgiven. Or I can't remember exactly the language, but it was this idea that, you know, we look at those who've been labeled criminals um, and we imagine that they're the ones who ought to be forgiven. Um, And when in fact we are the ones who may have committed the greater crime – Right. Mm. The, the, the young man who's caught with some weed in his pocket, he's hustling to make some money on the side to buy some shoes or help his mama pay the rent. Uh, how serious of a crime is that compared to the crime we commit by locking him in a literal cage, treating him worse than we would treat many animals and then stripping him of all his civil and human rights upon release? Whose crime really uh, is in need of forgiveness? And, uh, you know, I think all of the shaming and blaming that we've been doing in recent decades of the poorest and often the darkest among us, Hmm. um, I think really says more about ourselves than it does about them. Hmm. It's, it's it's almost almost just need to let that sit there in the room and not say anything else. <laughs> I have a couple more questions. Um, yeah, I think you're really eloquent about um, even for yourself. Um, I mean, part of I would say one big theme really that we've been talking about this whole time that you write about is the conversations we we ha- we don't know how to have. We're just grasping to have culturally and. And I find it very moving when you talk about the conversations it's almost impossible for you to have just in as you are out there. And um, one of them you wrote about in November of 2014 in the New York Times. You know, that, that's, I think the title of this article or the subtitle was It's Much Easier Telling the Truth About Race and Justice in America to Strangers Than to My Son, mm-hmm. who will mm-hmm. soon be forced to live it. And that balance that you're walking as a mother of a black son, of telling him the truth and doing what every mother wants to do, which is 
help your child feel safe and comfort them. This was at, um, after the after Ferguson, right? After Michael Brown's shooting. Yes. Yeah, you know, it is a painful thing for, you know, any parent, particularly black parents, to have to tell their children, um, no, actually, you cannot trust the police. Um, And when I had to tell my son that I knew um, that the officer who killed Michael Brown would not be indicted. and right, that Because children have I such knew. a sense of justice, right? And he was asking you, he's 10 yes. and he wants you to tell him that there will yes. be a trial. Yes. He was saying, how can there not be a trial? At least he'll go to trial, right? Mm-hmm. Of course there'll be a trial. And you're a lawyer. How could there not be a trial? Yeah. You know, and even before the grand jury came back, I knew there's no way they're going to indict this officer. And I knew because I knew how rare it is that officers ever get indicted for shooting unarmed black men. And to tell him that because he's he deserves the truth. Yeah. I owe him the truth. But also to see how it shatters him and to know that, you know, uh, he isn't ever going to have the luxury of uh, imagining that, um, you know, a police officer pulls up behind him in a car, um, that he will be afforded the same presumptions um, of innocence that he might be afforded if he were white. And, uh, you know, I had an experience with my son when he was very young. Uh, Gosh, he must have been five, six, I'm not sure. He had been playing outside with water guns. It was in the middle of the summer, and I was having Mm -hmm. to run a bunch of errands, and I told all the kids to jump in the car. We're going to go to the mall. I have to get a gift uh, for someone. And unbeknownst to me, he brings his water gun with him in the car and get to the store. We jump out crossing the street and a police car drives by. And as the car drives by, my son whips out his little water gun, which I didn't realize he had it, and starts pointing the gun at the police vehicle and saying, bang, bang, cops and robbers. He's laughing hysterically. And the fear and rage that welled up in me as Mm. I practically tackled my son on the sidewalk and telling him, you cannot do that, you know. Mm. And it it was a knowingness that he wouldn't just be a little boy playing with a water gun pointing at a police officer, but he would be a black boy. Yeah pointing what might well be imagined to be a gun at a police officer that, you know, shook me to my core. And when Tamir Rice was killed, my son came home and said, I saw a picture of a boy who looks just like me who Mm. was killed by the police. And I said, yeah, he does look just like you. And that's why I tackled you on the street. (laughs) Um, Oh. You also tell a story about um, being confronted by a white woman whose son is in prison, who's caught up also in this um, this same cycle, which which had a sense of racial disorder at its origins, but um, hasn't stopped there. 
Could you talk a little bit? Do you know what story I'm talking about? I'm not sure. Which um, woman? I'm trying to think where you wrote this. This woman, and so you, you it was a piece you wrote, and you, she, she stood up, and, and now I didn't write down the question she asked you, but of course, but you, you know, you ended up saying, you know, how do I answer her? What do I say to her? And you, you finally said, your son is suffering because of a drug war declared uh, with black with, folks in with mind. With black folks in mind, yes. Do you know what I'm talking about? Yes, yeah. Um yeah. A couple of years ago, I gave a talk and afterwards during the Q&A period, a white woman approached the microphone and she said, I hear you talking about all of the pain and suffering experienced by African-Americans in the war on drugs. And I hear you and I believe you. But, you know, I, uh, you know, have a child who has been ensnared by the drug war, and they're suffering too. Yeah. You know, what about him? And, you know, I had to say in all honesty, yeah, your son is suffering because of a drug war declared with black folks in mind. And as painful as it is to acknowledge that there are, you know, millions of white folks who are serving longer sentences than they otherwise would have, are having their cars or homes forfeited as a result of, you know, federal drug forfeiture laws, who are, you know, getting prison sentences rather than drug treatment Mm. because of this war mentality um, that overtook the nation when we imagined collectively that drug offenders were black and brown. And uh, if it had not been through, you know, if it hadn't been for the, you know, the crack epidemic and the vicious response of our legislators, um, you know, not extending drug treatment on demand, not, you know, rushing to these neighborhoods with care and concern. How can we help uh, these folks who are living in these, you know, communities where work has disappeared due to factories closing j- down and moving overseas and where there's despair and hopelessness and rising drug addiction? How can we go in and help yeah. these communities? No, instead they declared a war yeah. on those people. Yeah. And the mandatory minimum sentences and the harsh drug laws and the three strikes laws and the scaling back of drug treatment and all of that um, has impacted people of all colors. Um, And, you know, I I think, you know, we're at a point today where that is becoming clearer. You know, you see that the response of many legislators who have white constituents who are suffering – with heroin from heroin addiction and meth addiction today, and they're calling for a kinder, gentler response right, and more right. drug treatment. Um, you know, are having to come to terms with the fact that they would not actually want for their own families or their own neighbors uh, the kind of punitive response um, that they signed on for when they imagined that the enemy in the war was black and brown. I just. Recently interviewed, um, I sat down with Patrice Cullors, one of the co-founders of Black Lives yes. Matter, she, and uh, and Robert Ross, who runs a California endowment. And you know, they both talked about that from different generations. But you know, she, the way she described it, growing up in Los Angeles in a neighborhood of you know crack addiction and crack down was, you know, she said, 
poverty and the effects of poverty. Um, that, you know, poverty had essentially been criminalized. The effects of poverty had been criminalized. And it was, yes, that's exactly right. Yeah. That is precisely what we did. And, you know, I think very often we talk about drug addiction or drug abuse or even the war on drugs, you know, out of its its historical kind of the political economic context yes. of the time. Yes. And, you know, at the time the drug war was declared and was ra- raging and was being ratcheted up by multiple presidents, you know, black communities were suffering from economic collapse. Yeah. Um, and, you know, hundreds of thousands of jobs had just vanished. There was enormous despair. Working communities that had been solidly working class were suddenly being ghettoized because of the disappearance of work. It wasn't as though suddenly, you know, black folks woke up and decided, oh, I guess we'll just stop working and, you know, do drugs instead. No. Uh, You know, um, many millions of black folks had, you know, migrated from the South trying to escape Jim Crow segregation in search of, you know, a better life and factory jobs in the North where they were segregated, um, you know, by policy, by federal policy into certain neighborhoods. But those neighborhoods, many of them were solidly working class because it was possible to support a family on a factory job. Once those jobs disappeared, uh, those communities were in a state of literal depression, right, um, and right, the severe right. segregation made it impossible for people to get to work in distant suburbs. Yeah. And um, we responded with a war yeah. <laughs> to that extraordinary level of suffering. Right, and it's that that story of suffering, that human wreckage, that human drama that somehow we managed not to incorporate into our narrative also or obviously not our policies and i feel like you know that's what you've that's the story you're kind of shining a light on and it's it's so important um i you know just i want to ask you i mean in some ways you've been talking about this the whole time but i just wonder how you know this as you you've talked about you know that you at some point developed an obsession with this the founding paradox of America that's now so full-blown. Um, and it's kind of as you walk through the world with this obsession, what you've learned, the truth you see, the truth you're telling, and the dialogue that you're having with people on all, on all sides of this. Um, how do you think this shapes, I would almost say this calling of yours, this knowledge, but also this calling, you know, how do you think it shapes your presence like in minute ways in the course of your days? Like what do you see that you didn't see before? How do you move through the world differently? And I realize that's a huge know. question, so maybe just talk about yeah. yesterday or today. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. You know, I talk a little bit at the beginning of the book that once my own eyes were opened, um, there was no way I could unsee. There was no way that I could uh, be blind anymore to, you know, what I had been in denial about for so long. And, you know, I think on many levels there are days when I think, oh, life might have been easier (laughs) if I'd never woken up, you know. Mm -hmm. Um, And I think that's one of the reasons why many of us 
stay asleep, you know, because we sense that if we really kind of woke up to the full reality and opened ourselves to seeing and witnessing and um, being present for the unnecessary suffering that exists and that we're complicit with, that you know, our life won't uh, be as easy. More might be required of us. Yeah. And we're having a hard enough time making it through the day as it is. Um, but I have to say that kind of waking up and seeing things as they are has also led me to just the most rewarding relationships and work that I can could imagine. And I'm grateful <laughs> to, to be awake and consciously um, committed to trying to birth a, a new America and no longer kind of lost in this, you know, fantasy, um, you know, this American dream world that if you just get the two-car garage and keep plodding along this path that somehow we're going to make it to mm-hmm. where we all want to go. And so, um, you know, I, I have to say that I'm I'm grateful. My the relationships that I now have and the work that I'm now involved in is much more rich mm-hmm. and meaningful than um, the path that I had been on before. And how do you think? This is another huge question. So, just the question is like, how would you start to think about this? Or, you know, how do you think all of this has shaped, evolved your sense of you know what it means to be human? You know, I've been um, thinking a lot lately about this notion of revolutionary love and what that means. And it's something that I spoke with Vincent Harding quite a bit about. And I think for me what it means to be fully human is to open ourselves to fully loving one another in an unsentimental way. I'm not talking about the romantic love or the idealized version of love, but that the simple act of caring for one another and being aware of our connectedness as human beings um, and also the reality of our suffering and the reality that we make a lot of mistakes and we struggle and we fail. That's all part of being human. We suffer, we love, we struggle, we fail, and then we love again. And I think, um, you know, trying not to imagine that we're anything uh, more or less than that, as human beings struggling to love and find our way, making mistakes, but still uh, yearning for uh, a deeper connection and a sense of purpose in our lives is what being human is all about. Now, of course, so many people, not just in the United States, but around the world, are struggling on a daily basis just to survive. Yeah. Um, but even among those folks, what I have found is that there's love to be found, right? Mm-hmm. Um, there's joy there. 
Um, there's suffering. There's redemption. All of it. And that's what it means to be human. And uh, if we are going to, um, if we're going to evolve <laughs> spiritually, yeah. Yeah. morally as human beings, uh, we're going to lean in um, to caring more and loving more for one another and honoring our connectedness and our oneness and resist that impulse, that fear-driven impulse to divide and label and react with punitiveness um, rather than care and concern. Oh, well, Michelle, this is so wonderful. I just, um, I'm so grateful for what you're doing. And I can't tell you how honored I am that you listen to the show and that you've read my work. And I, I, feel, I, I hope our paths will cross in person. I'm, I mean, I feel like I'd love to, to just have another whole conversation about this notion of revolutionary love because that's, that's on my mind too. So maybe we get to do that someday mm-hmm. as well. Oh, great. Wonderful. Thank you so much. Um, I appreciate um, the space that you've created for these kinds of meaningful dialogues. It's so important and, mm. and all too rare mm. in our public mm. discourse. So thank you. Well, thank you. I'm, I'll, it'll be thrilling to put this out on the air and we'll, we'll let you know exactly when that's happening. And um, yeah, so again, just um, wonderful to meet you. Oh, thank you. Okay. Great to meet you too. Take good care. You too. Bye-bye. Bye.